Well, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the same story in the book of Acts. This story began, if you remember, in Acts chapter 3. Pastor Steve-O, he preached on that for us. It was the story of Peter and John healing a paralyzed man and afterwards preaching the gospel, proclaiming the truth, and seeing thousands of people come to faith as a response. And then the story continued into chapter 4, when the, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the people in power, gathered Peter and John up, and they threatened them. And they told them, no matter what, you can't keep speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. And today we get to the last part of the story, when Peter and John, after they're released go back to the church to share everything that happened to him. And it's this piece that we're looking at this morning that has brought me uh, the most joy as I've gotten to study it. This last little piece of the story has made me extremely thankful this week, sitting in it and thinking about what this text means, because this part of the story speaks to an experience that I think every single one of us in this room can relate to really easily. It talks about crisis. Every one of us, right, we encounter crisis at some point in our lives. Maybe it's very similar to what, you, what Peter and John are going through, some crisis that has to do directly with opposition to your faith. But it could be a variety of things. You know, crisis comes in all sorts of ways. It might be because of the end of a relationship or the loss of a loved one. It might be just some period of intense stress or anxiety or losing a job or having some financial or health struggles. It all counts, right? There's all different kinds of crises. But it's in those moments, in those really difficult places, when the Christian faith offers us an incredible amount of power to bring us through it. And that's what we are looking at here in these verses um, this morning, what I want us to do is look at this passage in Acts chapter 4, this moment of crisis that Peter and John are going through, and I hope what we're going to find is some strength wherever we are, whatever crisis that we might be in the midst of or whatever we might be going through in the future. So that's what we're doing. We're going to look at the reality of crises, the reality of the crises we go through, the response to crisis, and then finally the strength amidst our crisis. So the reality of them, the response to them, and then the strength in the midst of them. Um, all right, so let's talk about crises in general, the reality of them in our life. You know, there are a lot of people in this world who will tell you that if you are a Christian and if you're good, if you submit to the Lord, if you do the right things, then you can expect a happy and comfortable life. There are pastors out there who will preach that to you. And you know what? They might also drive Lamborghinis and fly around in private jets to prove it to you. <laughs> These same people, they will tell you that, that if you're struggling, if there's hardship in your life, it's probably because of your own disobedience. If you don't have money, if you've come down with some kind of illness, it's because in some way, somehow, you lack the faith that you're supposed to have, and so God is punishing you. Now that kind of theology, it makes me furious. Because that, 
that line of thinking is completely opposed to what Scripture says. Now, yes, it is true. It is the case that following the law of God will benefit your life, right? That in general, if you, if you follow God's ways, it's often going to result in something good for you, right? Because, because God's law is good for us. It's the way we were created to live, right? Uh, it, it doesn't take rocket science to, to think that you're going to avoid some pain if you can keep yourself away from sin that God tells us is going to bring us harm, right? That doing basic things like loving your neighbor or being honest or resting one day during the week or not being consumed uh, over the things that you don't own and, and desiring things that you don't have, obsessing over them or, or, or not murdering people, not sleeping around, right? It's, it's not hard to figure out how, how following God's law will, will benefit your life. But you cannot read the Bible and come away with the conclusion that following Christ equals an easy and comfortable life. The most ancient book in the Bible is Job. Maybe you didn't know that, but it's the oldest one. Job is the most ancient book we have in our scripture. And, and if you read it, uh, the, the whole point of the book of Job is to dispel this myth. Do you remember the story? Job, he's this good, righteous, upstanding man in society. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, Job loses everything. All of his children die. All of his property is destroyed. He loses his health. And then his three friends come to give him some counsel. And they are the worst counselors because what they say is this false message they say Job this is happening because of your sin all these bad things that are happening in your life they're happening because you made it happen and you just need to admit it and then things will get better and Job he he counters that argument by saying well what about all these bad wicked people in the world that are thriving what about them how do you explain that and what about all these good people that you know who are suffering? How do you explain that? And at the end of the book, we know that God himself comes down and he speaks and he condemns those wicked counselors. So in the very oldest book in the Bible, we learn this basic truth that following the Lord isn't that simple. The truth of the matter, the truth of the Christian life is probably put best by Jesus himself. John chapter 16, he says... In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And it's that basic truth that the church is clinging to here in Acts chapter 4. If you read the story, we just read it, Ariel read it for us. We read that Peter and John, they, this terrible things happen to them and they come immediately to the church and they tell them the whole story. They tell them how they saw this paralyzed man at the temple and they spoke words of healing over him and he was cured of his paralysis. And then Peter, he preached that there was no other name by which people must be saved except for the name of Jesus. And as a response, thousands of people started to believe. But not everyone, right? Because after that, the leaders of the temple, the chief priests, the elders, the Sadducees, the people of influence, 
the, the heavy hitters, the guys who really had all the power in that community, we, we read that they threatened them. And before they let them go free, they said, you are not allowed to speak or teach at all ever again in the name of Jesus. Now that's pretty bad. That is something I would call a crisis. Especially if you are an apostle, right? Your, your whole reason for existing, the purpose of your life is to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And the people who are threatening them, remember, these are, they're not all talk. These guys are serious. They mean business. Those are the same people that crucified Jesus just two months ago. And what I love in this passage is you can tell by the way the church responds to this information, you can tell they have really good theology. See, they don't think it's weird. They don't think it's an abnormal thing that now all of a sudden they have all this opposition. They don't say, oh man, this must be Peter's fault, right? Oh, Peter, you must have sinned. You must have messed up because now God is punishing you. No, they don't say that. They realize this is normal. This is the way it's going to be. Suffering, hardship, opposition, crisis is what the people of God are supposed to expect. And they quote Psalm 2. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can open those up. I'm not sure what page it is, but, but if you don't have a Bible, take one of those on the chair home with you. Um, they quote Psalm 2 which is an ancient psalm. It's from David. It's hundreds of years old. And it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were together against the Lord and against His anointed. In other words, they're looking back to Scripture and they're realizing that it's not unusual to face opposition. What was unusual was Acts chapter 2. What was unusual was when they had no opposition. When people heard the gospel preached and, and everybody responded in faith. But this is the way it's always been. The world is set against the spreading of the gospel. God's people should expect to face trouble. And I bring this up because I think if we could ground ourselves like this, if we could root ourselves in this more realistic biblical mindset about life it would really help us out a lot especially in the United States right where we are told that our lives are supposed to be comfortable where we think the normal is for things to go well where we think things are supposed to be easy so often in our own lives when we get to this point of crisis we feel like something has gone horribly wrong right we we can't wait for things to get back to normal, where everything is easy. But Scripture tells us we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised by hardship and opposition and crisis, because here's the reality of our crisis. In the fallen world, we are guaranteed trouble. So we shouldn't be surprised when we come upon them. The question for us then, that means the question is not whether we will encounter crisis. It's not whether we will encounter some trouble. But the question is, when we do encounter trouble, how should we respond? 
When we do reach those moments, what are we supposed to do about it? And that's the next thing I want to talk to you about. How do we respond in these moments of crisis? The apostles here, this is a great blueprint for us. Their response to this incident is super encouraging to me, and I hope it it will be to you, because the first thing that we see is in verse 23. He says, When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So their first instinct was to do what? Go tell their friends, right? To go tell it to the church. They didn't try to go do this all by themselves. Now maybe you think, well, Peter and John, you know, they're strong guys. They're, they're, they're powerful men. They were just healing paralyzed men. They were doing miracles. They're preaching the gospel and, and thousands of people are coming to faith. They can do this on their own. They don't, need, they don't need any support. But that doesn't cross their minds. Immediately, they go to the fellowship. Immediately, they go to find some people who can help them to carry the weight So much of our dysfunction as Christians flows out of our isolation. When we are under stress, when we are going through trials, when we're in the midst of hardship, folks, we need to share our burdens. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we don't do that. We live in a busy city, right? A lot of us, we are are working all the time to pay for rent that we can barely afford. We're busy. Some of us have small kids that occupy most of our our free time. Some of us have families that, that need extra attention. There's plenty of excuses. I don't know. We all have lots of them. But I think even more than those excuses, even more than those reasons that we see, those reasons that we list for why we are so isolated, I believe that it is Satan's prerogative to keep us apart from one another, to push us off on our own, to fill our heads with lies so that we feel beaten down and burdened and abandoned. We believe that people aren't going to be interested in our problems or that they won't be available, that we'll share our hearts and they're not going to care. But in all my years in the church, I have never seen that. In all of my years as as a pastor in ministry and even before that, I have never seen someone come to the church for help, and the church respond by shrugging it off. I've never seen someone ask for prayer, or ask for a meal, or even ask for financial help, and then hear hear them respond by saying, no, sorry, we can't help you out, we're too busy. No, I haven't ever seen that. Now, what I have seen, though, is I have seen people who begin to struggle, who are going through something hard, and then they isolate themselves. They pull off into their own separate corner. They withdraw from the community. And then in the midst of that isolation, they feel bitter. They feel alone. They, 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 they get angry with the church. They feel like nobody has come to their aid. 
Maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe you feel like the church is failing you. Like the church is letting you down in your time of need. And if that's true, I want to apologize. I'm sorry. But I want to invite you, share your need with us. Let us know. Let us know where you need help. Let us know how we can support you. Bring it to your brothers and sisters. You are not alone in your crisis, whatever it is. But you got to let us know what you need. Here, these men, Peter and John, these men of God, when they see what they're up against, their first reaction is to bring it to their friends in the church. To tell them everything is what it says. So that they could bear the burden together. But then the second thing that follows that up, uh, what happens next is maybe, uh, is, is even better. They immediately, the church, when they hear about this need, the first thing they do is they take it to the Lord in prayer. There's a bunch of great prayers that are recorded for us in Acts, and this one is certainly no exception. This prayer, man, the faith in this prayer is astonishing. The first word. You can open up your Bibles. You can look at it with me. The first word in this prayer, verse 24. Sovereign Lord. The Greek there is despota. It's, a, it's where we get our English word despot. It's not a, it's, it's a you know, that has a, a pretty negative connotation in English, but you can get the basic idea from it. It's this word that, that speaks to the absolute power, the absolute control, the complete awareness, the sovereignty of God. They say, In this moment, God, we recognize that you already know everything that's going on. They say, Sovereign Lord. In a time of crisis, that is where you have to start. With that reminder that no matter how bad things may seem, God has not lost control. That he knows us. That he knows you. He sees you in your suffering. He's not far from you. And he's still working. Even in those hardest places. In fact, it's often in those hardest places. It's often in our suffering, in our crisis, when he is actually working the most. Amen? Pete Scazzaro, he's a a pastor in New York. Um, we went down there, uh, Melissa and I went down there a couple weeks ago um, for a conference, and he's retired now, but he was teaching um, some other pastors who'd come, and he just shared with us how in his life and in his ministry, he found that without exception, it was during the most painful times in his life when God was doing the most in his heart. He even went on to reflecting on it, uh, looking back, and he said, you know, he, he even regrets how anxious he was to get out of those times of trial. Because now he can see just how powerful and how tangible the sovereignty of God and his presence was in those moments. 
And the church knows that. That's why they begin this prayer with the words, Sovereign God. And then it gets even better. As they keep praying, it gets even better. We already mentioned that they, they quote Psalm 2. Right? They recognize that this opposition, this hardship, it's nothing new. It's what they should have expected. Um, that the world is always going to be against the advancement of the gospel. But then they say this. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. These powerful people. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Remember the context here. These guys, these tough guys who've just threatened Peter and John, these are the same guys who, who sent Jesus to the cross. They are powerful people. Their threats are real. And they have just come to the church and they have asked for prayer. Imagine that you're in that room. How are you going to pray for them? Maybe you pray for, what, protection? Right? Lord, protect these men. Maybe you pray for justice. Lord, bring some justice against these unrighteous and corrupt rulers. But that's not what they pray for at all. Do you notice that? They say, bless them with more miracles so that they can preach about Jesus even more. Right? They're inviting more persecution. They're inviting more suffering. They say, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Man, that is, that is a glorious kind of prayer. And you know, I hope... It's a prayer that you yourself might be willing to pray today. Wherever you find yourself this morning, that is a prayer that whatever trials you're going through, whatever trial might be ahead of you, this is how we should pray. It's simply this. Lord, give me the strength to be faithful. Lord, give me the strength to be faithful here. There are as many different kinds of crises as there are people to go through them. And I don't know what particular burden might lie ahead of you. But I know from experience that in those times, there will be tremendous pressure on you to slide into sin. To turn away from the Lord. Whether it's by taking the low road of blame shifting and excuse making or by falling into anger and bitterness or fear and doubt or compromising your character in some way or just trying to run away from the pain and, and numb yourself from it. In those times of crisis, you're going to be tempted to turn from God. And that is when you need like these men, to get on your knees and to cry out, Lord, give me the strength to be faithful. I read that story and I'm extremely convicted. I'm convicted about our church and our own church's lack of prayer together. You know, I hear that there are a lot of people who are anxious over difficulties that we have been through as a church. And I hear a lot of people who are problem solving, 
who are thinking creatively, who are brainstorming and trying to figure stuff out. But you know what I don't see? I don't see us asking God to give us the strength to be faithful. I don't see us praying. God says we don't have because we don't ask. And there's just such a beauty to this church. The way they immediately go before the Lord. The way they intercede on behalf of these brothers. They don't try to to push through it alone. They don't try to do it in their own strength. Instead, this church, they surrender to the sovereign Lord. They stop. And they look to the only one who can really meet them in their trouble. So that's it. That's the Christian response right there. That is it summed up. It's not isolation, but fellowship. It's not self-reliance or escape, but it is seeking God for strength through prayer. So now I want to talk a little bit about that prayer. I want to talk about the strength that we have available to us in the midst of crisis. The last verse, it says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That last verse, it tells us that when the people pray, God shakes the whole building, and he fills them up with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we keep reading through Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit coming and doing all different sorts of of things that uh, we'll need to examine and to to help us understand it. I I want to point out here that this is not the same thing that happened at Pentecost in chapter 2. This is not like some... uh, re-arrival of the Holy Spirit. This is, is, it's not like a second coming. What it is is simply God moving freshly amongst his people. And he still does that today. You might read that verse and you say, well, you know, I'd like, what I'd really like is for God to shake my apartment. (laughs) That's what I want. That would give me some comfort. That's all I need to know that he's here with me. But that's not true. What you really need, and what they really needed, was the Spirit in their hearts. That building shaking stuff, that was a great sign, that was an affirmation to them, but the real thing that they needed was what they prayed for. For God to give them boldness. For God to give them faith. For God to give them strength to be faithful. And that's what He does. And folks, that's what He still does. When we pray, God responds. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to your needs. When you come before him in prayer, God shows up. He shows up to strengthen his people. There's this passage near the end of Genesis. It's uh, when Jacob, one of the patriarchs, is blessing his children. And one by one, he he speaks a blessing over each one of his 12 kids. And finally, he gets to his son, Joseph. You might remember his story. He was uh, 
He had a really tough life. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He got out and became prosperous in, in his master's house, but was framed and then thrown into prison and left there to rot. But by God's grace, he was taken out and he rose to this high position in Egypt. And when Jacob is blessing him, here's what he says. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now I bring that up because I think that picture that Jacob is using to describe Joseph uh, being like a warrior, right? Being like a warrior who's under attack. I think that's a really helpful picture for us. What he's saying is that in the midst of all that hardship that Joseph experienced in his life, in the midst of all those trials, in the midst of all those crises that he had to endure, in the middle of his worst attacks, he didn't survive in his own strength. He says the, his arms were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said, God Almighty, the eternal, the omnipotent, stoops down from his throne and he puts his hand upon Joseph's hand. He puts his arms on top of Joseph's arms like a parent teaching his child that he may be made strong. That is a picture of us. Do not let the power of the Holy Spirit that you see here in Acts chapter 4, don't let that be an abstract idea for you today. Don't let that be something that seems distant and, and far off and unattainable. It cannot be. God hears our prayers. That's a promise. That is a reality. God gives strength to his people. Wherever you are this morning, you know, maybe there's some of you here who you don't even know the Lord. And you hear this stuff and you say, I don't know. Maybe you feel like you are being crushed by evil. Maybe you feel like you're being crushed by the, the trials that you're going through. But, but I want to I assure you that if you cry out to God right now, He will hear your prayer and He will save you. And maybe you're here in this room, maybe you're a Christian and you say, how can I be so sure? How can I know that God's going to give me strength? You say, I've sinned a lot lately. <laughs> maybe I deserve it. If he's not going to shake the building, how can I be sure that he's going to give me strength? Well, the answer is simple. It's the cross. That's how you can know. You see, none of us have earned the right for God to strengthen us. We don't deserve it. None of us deserve to, for God to hear us when we cry out to him. We, we deserve to be left behind. We deserve to struggle on our own. But because of his great love for us, God sent his son Jesus to get what we deserve. You see, on the cross, 
Jesus cried out for strength and his cries were overlooked. On the cross, Jesus was not strengthened. The Father did not wrap his arms around him. But instead, Jesus was forsaken in our place. He was overlooked so that when we cry out in his name, when we cry out to God in the name of Jesus, we will never be passed over. And so today, that's, that's my message. Don't be surprised by the trials that come on you. They are nothing new. But don't try to endure them on your own. Don't try to endure them as if God's not there, if He's not available. God is for you. He will meet you. And so today I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you first to to share your burdens with the church. Share your burdens with with your brothers and sisters and, and together let us share them with the living God. I want to invite you to pray that prayer this morning. Lord, give me the strength to be faithful. And as you come to Him, as you come to this table and receive from Him, I want you to let Him wrap His arms around you. I want you to let Him place His hands on your hands and give you strength. Let's pray. Father, we don't have strength on our own. We try and we fail. We fall on our faces. We get discouraged. And sometimes it seems like all hope is lost. But Father, I pray that for us today, we would not believe the lie. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus on the cross and remember that you are mighty to save. That there is no wrath left for us. There is no punishment being doled out to us because the punishment has been taken for us on the cross. And Lord, I pray that in whatever struggles we may be going through, Lord, we could come to you and ask for strength. I pray for those of us who might be blessed with a time of relative ease. Lord, that you might enable us to bear the burdens for someone else. That we might offer life and strength and be the hands and feet of Jesus today. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.